This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Paston. Now, Robert, you've had a late night, haven't you? You weren't out partying. You were uh, grafting. Tell us what was going on. Yeah, it was a busy time yesterday because we began to see the shape of Rishi Sunak's new approach to reducing carbon emissions. And I mean, really dramatic stuff. As you know, since 2010, every Tory prime minister has made increasingly serious announcements about measures to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And Rishi Sunak is the first Tory prime minister since 2010 to say he is going to delay what some would regard as you know, really important initiatives like forcing us to stop buying diesel and petrol cars, forcing us to change our gas boilers for boilers that emit less carbon dioxide. So he is slowing down the transition to what's called net zero. This has massive implications for business. I mean, for, so one of the things that I'm absolutely gripped by, haven't got the answer to yet, is whether this is going to slow down investment, in, for example, in electric vehicles in this country. So we're going to come back to all of this, aren't we, Steph? We definitely are, because as you say, a lot of implications for us to analyse and talk about on the show. So should we tell you what we're talking about today? We're obviously a year on from Liz Truss as Prime Minister. She's back in the news again. Uh, we'll be looking at whether she got anything right in that kind of calamitous time we went through with the economy last year. You want to talk about Elon Musk as well? don't you, Robert? Yeah, I'm just fascinated. Look, he is the most extraordinary entrepreneur. And there's a brilliant book that looks about what shaped him as an individual. And my God, entrepreneurs are weird people. And it's fascinating to sort of look at the psychology of the entrepreneur. And also, of course, he's uh, uh, suggested this week that he wants us all to pay for X. So we'll talk about that. And uh, talking of social media, TikTok, I'm obsessed with where the money is coming in from on TikTok and where it's going. So we'll talk about the secret behind all of that. And then we're talking beer, aren't we? Well, we're talking surge pricing, dynamic pricing, this idea that when we all want a good or service at the same time, a business can 
can charge us much more. And the pub chain Stonegate has attracted a bit of attention because during peak hours, it's putting up the price of beer. And we're going to look at both the economics and the business of that. So I want to start by taking us back a year, Robert. You'll remember this time last year, Liz Truss was our prime minister. Not for long, hey? Halcyon days, halcyon days. Yeah, an incredible time, wasn't it? And you'll remember her first two weeks when she became prime minister revolved around leading the nation, who of course were mourning the death of the Queen. Massive time, a hell of a start to someone's leadership. Uh, And then following that came the not-so-mini budget that caused economic chaos. So before we explain what she did, and then the chaos that followed. Do you just want to tell us, Robert, kind of what her mindset was at the time and you know, what she'd built her leadership campaign on? Um, Steph, she got a really big thing right, which is that the economy had been bumping along for 15 years. Uh, our living standards had been stagnating for 15 years. And that wasn't sustainable, not if we wanted to have decent public services, you know, not, not if we wanted as individuals to have the kind of lifestyles we want, not if we wanted to you know, eliminate poverty. Um, and so she was obsessed with trying to restart the economy all through the summer. She had been uh, telling Tory supporters during the election campaign that she was going to slash taxes. Uh, uh, and that was the electric shock that she wanted to deliver to the economy. Now, lots of people well, do disagree that that's the best way to restart the economy. That is the best way to, you know, deliver the tax revenues that fund public services, but it was her plan and that's what she wanted to do. And there was no way, she's a very determined person, she was going to be knocked off course. Yeah. So she wanted to be bold, didn't she, from what you're saying, and not tinker around the edges with all of this. So when she brought out uh, this mini budget, which is uh, September the 23rd last year, it included things like scrapping the 45 pence top rate of tax uh, you know, on earnings of more than 150 grand, cancelling the planned rise in corporation tax and national insurance, doubling the threshold for stamp duty and bringing forward a cut in the basic rate of income tax. Now, lots of tax cuts, but the problem was there was no information on how she was going to pay for them. And that was the big problem. We were looking at a 45 billion pound black hole in all of this. And that caused chaos. Um, And just, I remember explaining this at the time on my show, because obviously everything, lots happened, didn't it, with with guilts, government bonds. So I just want to explain kind of why that happens. So when the government is not bringing in enough money from taxes to cover spending, it has to borrow money. So to do that, they sell bonds, which are called gilts, which is basically a loan and all countries do this. So an investor will give the government money and in return, they get a guarantee. They're going to get that back plus interest. Now, how much interest they get is based on how likely it is that the government will be able to pay it back. And when this mini budget was announced, it suddenly looked like they weren't good for the money. So that suddenly made it more expensive for the government to borrow money. But more importantly, it made us not attractive to investors. And that caused chaos, didn't it, Robert? Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, there are two factors. You're right that the interest rate that investors charge governments when they lend to governments is conditional on the assessment of risk. And, you know, if there are worries that you can't repay your debts, I mean, it's true of a business, it's true of an individual, it's true of a government, then the interest rate gets higher. But there's another factor, which is interest rates um, were rising, uh, actually have been for months and months across the world because inflation is back. Um, Mm. And so there were these double pressures on UK interest rates, 
you know, which is on the one hand, interest rates are going up in America, all through Europe, across the world, because inflation is back and central banks put up interest rates to bear down on inflation. But our interest rates went up more than anywhere else because we were perceived to be the riskiest country. The government was supposed, was perceived to be the riskiest borrower. Um, the analogy I like to use is that when global investors look around the world um, for where to put their money, it's an ugly contest. And they basically take money out of the ugliest. And we were the ugliest as a result of this mini budget, because these massive tax cuts were unfunded. Because mm. Liz Truss and Quasi Quating, her chancellor, were proposing to borrow, as you say, 45, 50 billion additional, uh, you know, additionally every year to cut the top rate of tax, to uh, allow companies to still have a tax rate of 19%. It was supposed to go up to 25% to cut national insurance. This, you know, these were massive tax cuts. It was embarrassing, wasn't it? Because do you remember like the IMF coming out to say, how bad it looked. And, you know, they're the organisation that ends up bailing countries out, like normally third world countries. And they were coming out saying how how bad our economy looked. It was just humiliating. I mean, from, from Liz Truss's point of view, she, I mean, she felt there was a sort of establishment pile on. I mean, she still doesn't think she was wrong. Um, uh, I mean, she is a remarkably sort of determined, some would say slightly obsessional person. But you're right, the economic establishment looked at what was happening in the UK, agreed with investors that what she'd done was reckless. Now, her problems were compounded by something that was not her fault. And that is that pension funds over a period of years had in effect borrowed very, very large sums of money to invest in UK government bonds. And the reason they invest in UK government bonds is actually a function of what I would regard as really pretty poor regulation in this country. And it's to do with the way pension funds are forced to invest in what are seen to be the safest assets. It sounds like a bit of a joke given the fall in government bonds. And that, and that they were basically forced to invest in government bonds. And one of the ways they did that was through some financial engineering, where, as I say, they effectively borrowed money to invest in these government bonds. But the problem that emerged for pension funds is because of the mini budget, the market price of government bonds fell. And these this debt that they had, it was uncovered by the security of these government bonds. There was a gap between the value of the government bonds and the value of their debts. Now, in those circumstances, I know this is complicated, but it's important. Um, those who lend when they can see the value of the security falling, they force the borrower, in this case, the pension funds, to sell the assets. And therefore, pension funds got into this fire sale of assets, government bonds, shares, and that multiplied the collapse in price of government bonds. It meant the problems for the government were even worse, and interest rates went up even more effectively. And what that led to was the Bank of England having to step in to try and stabilise this by buying some of the bonds themselves and basically trying to calm everyone down in it. But the problem was there was a time limit set to this support. And then that led to even more issues further down the line when the support was pulled. And I know you'll remember that Monday very clearly, Robert, when that support ended. I mean, I remember talking to... Uh, hedge fund managers, uh, individuals in some cases worth personally hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. And they were literally pulling their hair out at what this trust had done. I mean, you'd think they might have been happy that the top rate of tax 
was being cut. I mean, and they were saying things to me like, what on earth is she doing? The super rich who she was, she presumably thought she was appealing to, thought she was, she'd gone bonkers. Big point though, and this is, this is where I do have sympathy with Liz Truss. She says that neither she nor Quasi Quarting were warned about the perilous sort of state of pension funds, that they had this exposure, this dangerous exposure to guilts, right? And nobody has contradicted either Quasi Quarting uh, or Liz Truss. So it does look to me as though neither the Bank of England or the Treasury were apprised enough of what was a desperate weakness in British finance. I think that is a scandal. And I think we need to find out how the Bank of England got it so badly wrong. So the Bank of England, having it seems to me, to many people, having made a mistake in not regulating the pension fund sector effectively enough, then it has to be said, in effect, I hate this metaphor of holding a gun to Liz Truss's head, but that's sort of what they did. Because in order to stabilize the market, they started buying government bonds to you know, lift the price. But they said that there was going to be a time limit. And so Liz Truss knew that with only you know, a few days to go before the Bank of England was going to stop supporting bonds, that a crisis that was bad, but has sort of stabilized, once the Bank of England um, withdrew its support, this crisis was going to get mm-hmm. even worse. And so, you know, Bank of England was basically saying to Liz Truss, if you don't do a U-turn on these tax cuts, you're going to essentially bankrupt the UK. So guess what? Well, you know what she did. Yeah. Well, then she did a massive U-turn and then left her job shortly after, didn't she? Having sacked her chancellor. Yeah, having sat quasi. And, and and in the meantime, chaos everywhere, not just with, you know, you're talking about the, the hedge fund guys you were talking to. I was, you know, with on the show talking to all the people with homes who were coming up for remortgages and, you know, the mortgage rates were suddenly pulled, loads of products were pulled because no one had any idea what was going to happen with interest rates now because they knew they were inevitably going to have to go up. But uh, none of the providers could work out how much they were going to go up by, so didn't know what to set the fixed rate terms at. And so it, it just caused an absolute meltdown. But I'm interested, Robert, to look at where we're at now with all of this. Um, of course, we had the in- inflation figures out today, didn't we? And everyone was expecting the Bank of England was expecting it to have jumped up again over 7%. And actually, it had fallen to 6.7%, we found out this morning for August, which is interesting, isn't it? Because again, I mean, we, we talk about the Bank of England and how important they are in the economy, but it does feel like a lot of their predictions are wrong. I mean, it's certainly the case that one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in is that the Bank of England has consistently over the last two or three years got its inflation forecast wrong, or, or sort of consistently understated the likely inflation coming down the track. And therefore, many people would say, uh, you know, pushed up interest rates too slowly. Given that the inflation figures today are much better, both in terms of headline inflation and the measure that the Bank of England really looks at, which is inflation in the services industry. Both of those are much lower than people expected. Still quite a lot of inflation in the system, but falling. I think there is a chance that uh, the Bank of England will pause its rate rises. I mean, don't forget the, you know, the bank rate is still high at 5.5%. Um, it might go up an extra, you know, quarter of a percent tomorrow. My 
that would be it probably doesn't but we will get we will still be living with these level these levels of high interest rates probably for a couple of years and that takes us back to trust i think you and i walked to, we worked together during the financial crisis that trust period felt as scary yes. to me as the financial crisis back in back in 2007 2008 we worried did the government have the resources was there did they have enough money to bail out the banks this time it was very similar i did think this autumn um until there was this massive u-turn by liz truss and then by jeremy hunt as chancellor i did think there was a chance that the government would be unable to borrow the money it needed and there is no there is nothing worse for a country than not being able to to borrow the the money you need that is you know the economic impact of that because mm. interest rates go through the roof is 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 devastating this was really scary and we are still living with the after effect of that because i mean one of the reasons why you know J- jeremy hunt and rishi sunak have been so tough on not spending more money not cutting taxes is because investors were shaken by the trust weeks and it's very hard mm. to um to to shed the reputation for not managing the economy properly not managing the pro- public finances properly so there is a long term impact and a negative one yeah and you've we've heard mark carney haven't we uh this week former governor of the bank of england coming out and saying that uh Liz Truss failed to turn the UK into Singapore on Thames and instead delivered Argentina on the channel. She's um she's got a book out though, hasn't she? She's got a book that's coming that's gonna explain everything. And when we've read Liz Truss's book, we will recognise that she got everything right. Excellent. I look forward to that. That's April, isn't it? It's coming out. Right, should we move on? Let's talk Musk, Elon, as opposed to the scent. Although, Robert, I do believe you were complimented for your scent when you were on BBC Breakfast this week <laughs> doing publicity for your book. Uh, yes, a mutual friend of ours was able to um, spot my uh, scent in five seconds. Yeah, and it was a nice one. I'll just tell everyone in case you're thinking he stinks. Uh, Right, so yeah, we're talking Elon Musk. And uh, after making us all pay, if we want one, uh, for our blue ticks on Twitter, and of course changing the name to X, now it's looking like Elon Musk is going to make all users pay for using the X platform. Robert, this has come out from him talking at the weekend to uh, randomly Benjamin Netanyahu about it. Yeah, I mean, look, he's definitely imposing his ideas, his personality on, you know, a business we used to call Twitter. The latest um, initiative from him is, he says, it's an attempt to reduce the number of bots on the service. We have no idea yet how much he's going to charge people. I mean, I am a big presence on Twitter. I've been on it since it launched. I haven't quite worked out whether or not I think I'm going to want to pay for it. I mean, the problem he's got is that he bought a loss-making business. You know, we haven't got the latest financial data, but although he massively slashed the number of people who work for Twitter, and some would say that means the service has been worse. You know, there have been times when it's crashed. The moderation of extreme content, people say, has got worse. You know, it's not clear that profits have been generated. I'm told that it's quite hard to monitor. I do get an incredible number of adverts in my timeline now, but allegedly advertising revenue has not increased. He's got a problem. I think ad revenue is actually down for X now at the moment. And there's a concerns though around his leadership and, you know, that his management of hateful and inappropriate content, which makes it tricky for brands to, to spend money on the platform. And I know you've been reading, haven't you, his biography 
written by Walter Isaacson. He is an astonishing human being. I mean, I've been reading details of his childhood. I mean, it was sort of horrific, really. I mean, he was sent off uh, as a kid to a hot, you know, they, they grew up in South Africa. Uh, the book says that he had an abusive uh, father and a mother who struggled. The parents separated. You know, the book is replete with stories about him being beaten up in school playgrounds. He was always a slightly a loner. Isaacson basically says that he's on the spectrum. He had the kind of childhood that, that many actually entrepreneurs have, which was pretty brutal is that he goes to holiday camp in in south africa is a sort of survival of the fittest essentially i mean that you know on this holiday camp apparently that you know apparently kids died every what? two or three years and they used to sort of joke you know the kids sort of used to joke about this i mean this, that's that's what it is says it like in the, the hunger book. games or something and basically you know if you were a little kid you just you know you, you got beaten up when you got there all your money taken by the bigger kids and you, it was a way of toughening you up and oh my so God. this is all pretty Brutal. Yeah. And you get this sort of sense from the book of him and his two slightly younger siblings, to whom he is still very close, essentially protecting themselves. Um, he acquires this astonishing drive to succeed, gets into computers at quite a young age. And as we say, the rest is history. And, and just in terms of the longevity, one of his first businesses was a bank called X.com, which eventually got taken over by was merged into paypal but he's always thought that x.com mm. is like the best name he ever invented which is one of the reasons why twitter is now x and he's one of those people who just won't let go he won't he won't yeah. decide nothing is ever finished there's always a project it is astonishing which clearly works for me he's got a child called x as well hasn't he i mean it was a slightly longer name but then i think they uh, they wouldn't let him legally have the, the, I can't even say it because it's got that many Greek yeah. letters in and all sorts, hasn't it? Turns but, out he's got 10 children. And there's another yes. extraordinary story about how, so he's got some brilliant colleague who runs from memory the business that inserts computer chips into brains. Yeah, it's called Neuralink. He was talking to her about the importance of having children. And so she then has twins by him at the time that he's having children with, the artist Grimes, who was his main partner, and Grimes doesn't even know. And he lost he lost a child as oh, well, very young, very, at 11, young, and then one of them died quite sad, young. Very sad. I mean, Dickens could have sort of captured the scale of this life. It is astonishing. You talked there about he, you know, his kind of absolute determination to succeed, and I think, and you mentioned about PayPal X becoming PayPal, and it was before that, wasn't it? His first business was Zip2, which he um, found in 1995, which was a software company that basically provided directories and maps for newspapers. So it was like the yellow pages online for newspapers. Um, and he sold that. This is his first, first big sale. Sold that to Compaq. I used to have a Compaq laptop back in the day. In uh, 1999, for $307 million. And that's then what set him off on the road, wasn't it? To becoming the world wealthiest. Yeah. Multi-millionaire I mean. by 31. Founded, of course, SpaceX in 2002. He was the first privately funded company to send a spacecraft 
or the Dragon, to the International Space Station. That's now worth something like $127 billion as well. Uh, 2003, he founded Tesla Motors. Of course, this changed the entire motor scene in terms of electric vehicles. That's worth something like £831 billion. He owns about a quarter of it. And then you mentioned that Neuralink business. This is where it gets really like sci-fi into, you know, obviously getting to the space station and all that is pretty sci-fi. But again, this, this idea of putting chips in our brains to help to allow us to be able to use our thoughts to control mobile phones and computers and things like that is mind-blowing. I mean, it's still in the testing stage at the minute. It also might help people people with disabilities. Yes, yes. They talk about wanting to help people with things like quadriplegia to be able to control motions and things like that, which would be incredible, and people with vision loss and hearing problems as well. It's incredible. He's doing a very secret venture in artificial intelligence, and absolutely gripped by the idea of what this project is going to turn out to be. So I know you've done a documentary on this and and I've been fascinated by this throughout my career as well, is the people who get to the top in business or in politics or whatever, quite often there is some kind of tragedy in their life, isn't there? Whether it's abuse like Elon Musk has, has allegedly faced or, you know, it's the death of a parent. Do you think you need that? Do you think you need something awful to happen to you? to be the best in business. So one of the things that seems to be a condition of being a really, really, really successful entrepreneur is one, just astonishing drive. There's no question that Elon Musk has that. And um, very little fear of failure and an ability when you do fail to pick yourself up. I think, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier about if you, for example, have an absolutely brutal childhood, or you have a parent that dies when you're young, in some ways, the worst that could possibly happen to you was already happened. Yeah. And therefore, your fear of some of the things that are sort of normal in life, like the fear of a business going bust, is probably lesser than for other people. And one of the things that I, I'm always struck by, for example, is not only the number of business leaders and, and entrepreneur, particularly entrepreneurs who've had something terrible happen to them while they're young, but also an enormous number of them have experienced failure quite early on, lost everything, and then so- somehow just pulled themselves mm-hmm. back up again um, to make these astonishing fortunes. Um, the capacity to absorb extreme risk is absolutely central to success. I always think this when when I think about education and you know you and I are always talking about education and and my big beef has always been about people are divided when they're young to either be in bright or thick on the basis of you know how they do academically and yet I see um, so many young people who do not have the structure at home to be able to be academic. You know, they don't have the um, the means to do all the homework because they're probably sharing a bedroom with loads of other kids or they're caring or for family members or whatever it is. There's so many other pressures that they struggle academically. But my God, they are incredibly resilient because they have to be to survive. They are, you know, incredible at thinking of business stuff to do. They're, you know, they're risk takers on things. And if that's honed in the right way, a a lot of them can, they could all go on, I think, to be incredible business leaders. I I think that's right. I mean, I mean, one of the things you'll also be aware of is Branson, for example, uh, how many business leaders who've made fortunes have dyslexia. Yeah. 
written off at school, but intrinsically very bright and just were determined to prove themselves in other in other ways. I mean, the other interesting question is the way the world divides between, well, lots of business leaders are in some ways sociopaths, brutal with their employees. I mean, Musk famously sacked vast numbers of people at Twitter now, X, when he, when he got in, including the board. He, he sacked the board hours before they were expecting to be sacked in a device that was supposedly designed to reduce the amount of payout they would get. Mm. Um, some of these sociopaths at the top are incredibly charming. They're, they're, they're very good at hiding how brutal they can be. Famously, I mean, you know, somebody like uh, the billionaire Philip Green was not charming. To put it mildly, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was, I was waiting with bated breath then to see what you were going to say. I was like, "What? Don't tell me he hid his sociopathic nature because he certainly didn't." Um, I was reading somewhere that did you know this that twelve presidents, twelve U.S. presidents, lost their fathers when they were young, including like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. So it's not just in business; it's kind of across the board. I think it's associated with getting to the top in many different worlds. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, do you remember when you and I went on the wheel? So this is Michael McIntyre's The Wheel, which is, um, for those of you who don't know, where you basically sit on this kind of waltzer type seat and get spun around and then contestants have to answer questions. And if it lands on you, you have to help them with the, with the question. And uh, you and I were both on it. And there was a question about Elon Musk, wasn't there? And it landed on me and the nerves got the better of me. And it was, and it was about your specialist which, subject as I well. Know. And it was, um, it was, the question was, which was his first um, company? And, you know, obviously the answer in terms of out of the options they gave you. And uh, it, the answer, of course, was PayPal. And I, the nerves got the better of me and answered Instagram um, and got it wrong. But, you got it wrong. I, but I mean, let's be absolutely clear. I may have got that right, but you nonetheless beat me in this contest, as you always do. Do you know what made me laugh? You might not remember this. Afterwards, you were like adamant that because one of the questions is what no, colour no. hat You're was. You're going to humiliate uh, me again. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I mean, this isn't humiliating. What colour hat does Luigi wear? And you were adamant it was red, and I was like, no, that's Mario, Robert. Luigi has a green hat. So, so I like <laughs> Elon Musk actually, who is obsessed with. He's genuinely obsessed with computer games. Fascinating. In the hours before making his, you know, announcing on on Twitter, he was going to buy Twitter. He'd spent all literally all night till four in the morning playing a new computer game. He's obsessed with computer games. I'm not. Wow. There we are then. Right. Should we have a break? That'd be lovely. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. Now, we've just been talking about how Elon Musk has been struggling to make money out of X, the business formerly known as Twitter. Um, You are, I think, quite active on TikTok, and you've been actually increasingly fascinated by how it is trying to generate income, not only for itself, but how users generate income. Yeah. Yeah. I have. I mean, I have become a bit obsessed with TikTok. I'm fascinated about where all the money is coming from and going to, because, you know, I mean, TikTok's in the news all the time at the minute, isn't it? Whether it's about concerns about the Chinese using it to spy on us or fines for data breaches on children's accounts. There's all sorts going on, but you cannot deny the success and also the incredible growth the thing that TikTok do really well is it's not about necessarily about the number of followers. It's more about the number of views of things. And they encourage people to kind of jump from trend to trend and become part of these kind of temporary friendship groups to share inside jokes and challenges and riffs and everything. But in terms of usage, it's something like 1.67 billion users at the moment. 1.1 of them are, are active users. But if you look at how much time somebody spends on TikTok, It's on average 96 minutes of the day on the app, which is nearly five times what they spend on Snapchat, three times more than what they're spending on X, and almost twice as much as their time on Facebook and Instagram. So TikTok has got the eyes for a long time when they are using the site. And what's interesting is how they make money from this, because you know we were talking earlier about Elon Musk and the fact that ad revenues are, are not necessarily going up for X, whereas we're seeing incredible rises in revenues at TikTok. It's still not quite profitable for ByteDance, but they're suggesting that it won't be far off making a profit for them soon. So the way it works, there's the TikTok shop. So companies will kind of gift people products. And then when they're used in the videos, people can click on a link on the page. And then the person who's created the video will get a percentage and TikTok will get a percentage of the sale. And then there's like big brand sponsorship deals. So the user making the content will be sponsored to do a challenge or create certain content, which a brand will be behind. And again, the user will take a percentage of it and TikTok will take a percentage of it. Then you've got things like these, what you call in-app purchases. So users can gift content creators like virtual coins. That's their big thing. So it's a bit like a tip jar. So you might use real money to buy these coins, which then you gift to people who are making the videos that you really like. And again, TikTok take a percentage of this. So it's all to do, not necessarily, it's not pop-up ads in your face stuff. It's how they work with the content creators and the brands and the businesses to subtly, although not always subtle, have these products in. I mean, this is one version of how, you know, what the consultants have branded the metaverse is actually working in a commercial uh, sense. I've been completely obsessed. I am completely obsessed with artificial intelligence. You know, there's been all these forecasts 
that these online worlds where you can spend essentially invented currencies <laughs> were going to turn into you know genuine huge commercial opportunities and i think from what you're saying tiktok is very much in the vanguard of of that yeah it is tiktok is the leader particularly in app purchase stuff so they surpassed a billion dollars in global consumer spend through in app purchases in the first quarter of 2023 and they're the first app ever to clear that benchmark and you know in terms of their competitors on that it's like it's your games like candy crush or roblox it's your youtuber so within that world, TikTok are the ones who've managed to monetize that the best. Uh, and why do you think Meta, uh, you know, the business formerly known as Facebook, which was the one that very publicly said the metaverse is all about us, why do we think they haven't done so well? I think it's because they're too old school with it. I mean, I haven't. I left Facebook about. 15 years ago, I don't have a Facebook account at all. Well, I've got one, but I hardly ever go on. It's weird, isn't it? It used to be so important. And now I hardly ever look at it. I mean, it is No, odd. exactly. And I mean, I only found out the other day, someone actually has set up an account pretending to be me. So I've been trying to get that close down, which is near on impossible. If you're not on Facebook, it's impossible to tell them that you're someone is impersonating you. Anyway, that's another story. But I think as well, like Instagram has been about the beautiful people, hasn't it? And the aspirational, rich, wealthy people. People, whereas the people doing brilliantly on TikTok are the real people, the normal people who people relate to a lot more. And TikTok say it's for them, it's not about necessarily, as I said earlier, about followers. It's about how the audience interacts with these people. So TikTok is incredibly successful, relatively, it seems, at making money in new ways. Well, yeah, one of the things they're doing at the minute to try and get even bigger in the e-commerce side of stuff, which is clearly working for them with the TikTok shop, is to have something, it's called Trendy Beat, this idea. And it's basically where it sells products made by a subsidiary of its parent company, ByteDance. So in other words, they're going to get 100% of the revenue from this because, of course, they're making it and selling it themselves. And the, what's fascinating about this is, you know, you mentioned algorithms, is them using the algorithms in terms of collecting the, the data on what they're seeing as successful in terms of products. So people who are buying stuff through TikTok shop or people who are talking about particular products, they can then manufacture them within a couple of days and get them straight into the trendy beat part of the TikTok world and get them out there dead quick. And that's the fascinating thing. That's what we're seeing other companies do as well. Shein is another one that does this with fast fashion for clothes. They'll see what's trending and then quickly get them manufactured and get them out there and, and be the leader on it. So I'm really fascinated to see where that goes. It's only a very new thing in TikTok now. And I was talking yesterday to an agent of TikTok influencers. He represents about 45 different influencers. And he was saying, yeah, they haven't quite got their head around the trendy beat thing yet, but it looks like it could make a big difference. I mean, it's plainly very addictive, TikTok. I mean, I have made a few videos over the, over the years. But if you're in a house of teenagers, I mean, more or less every day for quite a long time, you know, they, one, of, you know one of them would come up to me and say, can you be in my TikTok? <laughs> and if anybody wants to see me in a slightly unorthodox setting, I think if you root around long enough, you'll find me in my stepkids' TikToks. Well, this this is the thing, you know, like coming back to this point about real people. Yesterday, I was chatting to a few very, very successful um, TikTokers. And one of them is a woman called Teresa, who's in her, I think she's like in her late 40s. 
And she basically started documenting her weight loss journey. But as part of it, she started saying what she was putting in her husband's pack lunch every day and people became obsessed with it. They are still obsessed with it. So, you know, this whole hashtag around what's in Mark's lunchbox has got an incredible number of viewers. So within the space of less than a year, she started her TikTok in October 2022. Just as Liz Truss was falling off a cliff, she started her incredible uh, up one and she was working as a nanny and before long because everyone was really interested in what she was putting in this lunchbox she quit a job as a nanny by June she'd got massive sponsorship deals with the likes of HelloFresh and teeth whitening strip companies and all sorts what she puts teeth whitening strips in her husband's lunchbox (laughs) that'd be a good thing wouldn't it (laughs) yeah no I think she (laughs) wears them and talks about them. Um, But she's just landed a four-figure sponsorship deal with a household snack brand to make one 30-second video. One. That's it. No, it is amazing. I mean, I should just point out that there is another group of people who are completely obsessed with TikTok, and they are the politicians who are warning that China is the great threat to our security as well as to our economy. I was talking to one minister the other day who, you know, broadly says that TikTok is the devil's instrument. I mean, it's not it's not the sort of spying bit of it that concerns him. Although, you know, it is striking that the government has banned TikTok from all government laptops and government phones. Interesting though, because obviously people politicians think it's a powerful way of reaching the public. I mean I remember Grant Shapps refused to delete it. I don't know if he has yet, but he was initially refused to delete it from his private phone, which was quite interesting. But the thing that, um, you know, ministers and others, you know, have been warning about is that TikTok's algorithm, because they want people to be addicted, the, the allegation is pumps up the volume on extreme content when it comes to politics and what some would regard as fake news, perhaps, or tendentious news. I mean, the, the, the conspiracy theorists, including, as I say, this minister, say it's about China trying to foment mayhem in democracies. So they are very worried about TikTok from a stability of the country point of view. So th- there is this sort of tension, as it were, between politicians and excited users of the service. I'm sure it's something we'll come back to talk about again, won't we? And um, we should say as well, the rest is money has got a TikTok. So if you want to watch uh, us TikTok in it, <laughs> and, and, and I imagine, I, ma- I imagine Beijing loves our clips. Although it's not, it's banned, isn't it, in China? TikTok, they've got their own version, Dujin. Presumably, though, if you're President Xi, even if it's banned, you can probably watch TikTok. Yes, of course you can. Right, let's talk now about Stonegate. So this is Britain's biggest pub company. It owns the likes of Slug and Lettuce, Walkabout, Be at One, Pop World. The list goes on. Now it's announced it's going to charge people 20 pence extra for a pint of beer on busy evenings and weekends in 800 of its venues. Now it's something it's done before. It did it during the World Cup, but they want to bring this in permanently to try and they say offset the high costs that they're facing. So Robert, this is called dynamic pricing, isn't it? Or surge pricing, yeah. There's a long history to dynamic pricing. And in fact, in the early period of the Industrial Revolution, in fact, pre-Industrial Revolution, there was no such thing as a sort of set price for anything. I mean, everything was bargaining. Yes, for a long time, there weren't obviously chains of shops. So as soon as we did move into the Industrial Revolution, the system of someone manually deciding the price based on 
you know, the time of day, the stock level, who was buying it even as well. It became inefficient, didn't it? As businesses grew in the industrial revolution, it was too time consuming and complicated. And also it made it really tricky for people to train up staff because you'd have to teach them how to haggle and then they need to know how much was paid for it and how much competitors were selling it for. And it would lead to like ridiculously long queues in shops and everyone getting hacked off because someone in front of them might have bought the same product and got it a bit cheaper. But the Quakers really helped to turn this around, didn't they? Because they obviously believe that since everyone is equal before God, everyone should be charged the same price. So in the Quaker-owned stores like Macy's, obviously a massive American one, and Wanamaker's starting in Philadelphia, they decided to charge the same for every product, regardless of who the buyer was. So in the 1870s, the price tag was invented, which obviously made things a lot faster in business. But then times changed. I think it was in the 80s when airlines were one of the first to transition to a system where prices could shift throughout the day and the week. And do you know, it, it's interesting this because originally it was done manually, which obviously didn't necessarily help them. And then they paid a lot of money to get software to do it for them. And that helped to pull companies like Delta out of the big financial downturn that they had been in was this new dynamic pricing automated system. And as a customer, it would drive you up the wall, wouldn't it? I mean, I still don't really know the truth of this, but because, you know, when you click on an airline site, you look at a price and you're not quite sure, and then you click back, you know, 20 minutes later and the price has gone up, it drives you mad, right? And you'd blame yourself for not booking on it earlier. And I never know whether these are sort of myths or reality. The myth was the airline knows you're interested and it sort of hooked you and can see via cookies that you've been there and then manipulates you by putting the price up. Now, I'm told that's not what happens. It is just to do with the amount of demand that they've seen in the interim period. But, you know, it comes to this whole question, though, of trust. I mean, Uber, obviously, in today's world, is, I think, the business that we most closely associate with dynamic or surge pricing. And the fact that there are certain times of the day where an Uber costs next to nothing. And then there's another time of the day when everything's busy and you can't get an Uber when when the price is really, really, really high or feels really high. And interestingly, we just take that for granted now, don't we? You know, there was a lot of outrage, I felt, when the pub chain announced it was putting up its prices in the evenings. But if that keeps the pubs open, then that's, is that not a good thing? Because, you know, it's something, I was looking at these figures the other day when I was doing a story on it, that there's more than two pubs close every day in England and Wales. So if, you know, if we value our pubs, and we've talked a lot about the higher costs they're facing. If we value them, maybe we just need to accept that pubs are going to do that as well in order to stay open. But why is surge pricing in this sense? You know, economically, it's it's no different from happy hour pricing. If you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, we take for granted that it's fine for for um, a pub or a bar to offer cheaper prices at a time when people aren't going in, and. That that is somehow regarded as a good thing. I mean, it, it just shows you how psychologically how weird we all are. That you know, if you're an economist, you would say there is literally no difference between surge mm. pricing, which you know everybody thinks is new, and happy hour pricing, which has been going on for 25 years. It's economically, it's exactly the same, but one we regard as good and one we regard as bad. Mad, that's mad. So maybe we call it unhappy hour when it goes up. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, maybe. it's been particularly controversial, though, hasn't it, in the music industry? Because, you know, there's been massive concerts on this year, like Harry Styles, Beyonce. Uh, I went to both of them and loved them. Uh, we went to Beyonce together once, didn't we, as well? That we was did. fun. What, what a joyful night out. Yes. But Ticketmaster prices fluctuate, which has obviously annoyed a lot of fans who end up paying double the face value and in some cases. And Live Nation, which is obviously the parent company, is now being investigated by the US Justice Department to do this antitrust probe, which is about them not being transparent about how it all works. And so it it seems to be we just get really annoyed if we think that music companies, if artists are fleecing us out of money because we see them as loaded anyway, I guess, and then think, well, now they're really preying on the fact that they've got these fans and people who are buying the tickets and selling them on and they've got surging prices and that's a big problem. Yeah, well, it's a problem in the sense of if you think that being a fan is a sort of form of addiction and you're vulnerable, then it doesn't seem very fair. Famously, the sort of, in a sense, founder of Ticketmaster, Fred Rosen, said nobody pays more for a ticket than they want to pay. And he, you know, he just says it's, it's a business, isn't it? You know, It's difficult to argue with that, except that we all know that there are some people who are so obsessed that they probably do spend more of their disposable income on tickets than is, is altogether healthy. I mean, one of the things I did want to talk about, though, is in a sense, the clash between what you might call economic theory and good business practice. You know, Adam Smith, great founder of modern economics, would presumably say that surge pricing, dynamic pricing leads to the most efficient allocation of resources through the marketplace in the sense that all classical economics would say that having flexible prices regulates demand and supply in the most optimal way. And essentially, therefore, any business that is able to price in real time, you know, millisecond by millisecond, according to demand, is an example of business operating in the way that, you know, something like Adam Smith would regard as the sort of perfect way. The other side of it, though, is that if you're a business, you're really, really interested in customer loyalty. And let's just go back to F.W. Woolworth, right? The original five and dime business in the States, everything for a penny in Britain, going back to the 19th, late 19th century, it built up enormous customer loyalty by essentially giving its customers confidence that they knew not only that the price would be the same where whichever store they went to, but it would be the same price for everything, right? And that built up a sort of loyalty to a business that saw it survive and thrive for you know well over a hundred years. So there is this sort of tension, and the same would you would argue for decades at Marks and Spencer. There is this tension between having fixed prices, but you persuade your customers that you're offering value for money, versus this idea that everything has got to be determined according to the laws of supply and demand, which is surge pricing. Interestingly, on that point and about customer loyalty and things, do you remember when Uber had to refund users in central London because its pricing engine had put up the prices in the aftermath of the London Bridge terror attack? 
back in uh, 2017. And they ended up having to, rightly so, refund the customers that money for the surge in pricing, because that would have been an absolute PR disaster for them, wouldn't it? Well, yes. I mean, and you know, obviously, you know, businesses that are sensible do have to put the sentiment of their customers before everything else. And it will be, to go back to this issue of pub pricing, it will be very interesting to see whether the surge pricing for Stonegate you know, helps it or ultimately drives customers away. And, you know, this is also a question that's going to be very, very important for government and public services. In the health service, you know, everything is free, right? The surge pricing in the health service is sort of rationing. The fact that you can't get what you want for months and months and months and months, that's actually ultimately a high price that people who are suffering and need a hip hip operation pay. So you do sort of have to ask yourself whether digital technology could help allocation in a rather better way, not just in business but also in public services yeah i am sure this is going to be something we come back to on the podcast as well so thank you for listening everybody just a reminder do send us in any questions you have is there something you want us to answer for you or something in particular you want us to discuss you can email us at restismoney at gmail.com and of course we're on tiktok we're on instagram we're on x thank you very much Robert. i'll see you next week looking forward to it bye